Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money. Thanks for being here. I'm your host, Chris Hill, and joining me in studio this week from Motley Fool Pro, Jeff Fisher, from Motley Fool Income Investor, James Early, and from Million Dollar Portfolio, Ron Gross. Gentlemen, good to see you as always. Chris, good, to good to see you, Chris. Chris. We have got earnings from Apple, Netflix, 3M, and more. We will look at Taco Bell's foray into the breakfast market. And as always, we've got a few stocks on our radar, but we begin with the big macro. On Friday, the government reported the economy grew at an annual rate of 2.8% in the fourth quarter. Ron Gross, that is the fastest pace in more than a year and a half, but yep. it, it was below expectations. That is true. Chris, I'm just happy to see it up. I mean, positive <laughs> territory is good. The expectations game is a difficult one to play. Look, um, Companies were rebuilding inventories. That was really why this number looked pretty robust, although, as you said, lower than expectations. That's probably not going to repeat, because inventories are now built up. Okay. So, we might see a pullback, which we have to expect. But consumer spending was good. I like that. Inflation seems no a sign of increasing. That's good. So, all in all, a pretty good report. All right. Let's move on to President Obama. During Tuesday's State of the Union address, he outlined plans for the energy industry. And on Thursday, he announced the sale of oil and gas drilling leases for around 38 million acres in the Gulf Coast. And James, he also promoted the completion of a highway for vehicles that run on liquefied natural gas. There is a lot there in the energy industry. What's your takeaway? Well, the highway investors? sounds good because there'd probably only be like two cars on that road. <laughs> um, Obama is very bullish on natural gas, which is which is wonderful because as great as uh, renewables are, they're just not likely to, to be a major power source in our lifetime or, or maybe even our children's. But a shift to natural gas is a long-term thing. It's not... In terms of investing, it's not necessarily going to drive these stock prices up immediately. Uh, the near-term issue is more we still have this gas oversupply, actually, that, that we have to deal with. Uh, Ron, obviously a lot for the energy industry, whether it's oil, natural gas. Is there an energy stock that, you know, when you think about everything <laughs> President Obama has talked about this week, is there an energy stock yeah. that's on your radar a, as a result? A company that I've spoken about recently as one of my radar, maybe even last week or the year, a week before, is Range Resources, ticker symbol RRC, a low-cost provider of natural gas operating in the Appalachian Southwest areas of the U.S. Um, it could be really interesting. Has been very volatile this last week. Has had more than one or two days of up or down 5%, 6%. So, um, i got to dig in there, but it could be an interesting play. James, what about I you? like Spectra. The ticker there is SE. It, it does have some exploration. It has a lot of uh, transportation, uh, gathering, processing, distribution. Basically, it's, it's a full spectrum um, uh, natural gas company. And, and I think that's that's prudent right now because the, the drillers often are mandated to keep drilling no matter what the price is. So that's why you're not seeing the drillers just all mm -hmm. pull back and let the price go up because they have these leases that make them drill. So I think we're going to see low prices for a while, so it's a good time to be in the midstream uh, space here. Jeff? So Obama said he's going to open up some 75% of offshore for drilling. I like Bristow Group, BRS mm -hmm. is the ticker. They own about 500 helicopters. And what they do is bring the... It's a helicopter play. <laughs> it's cool. Yeah, they bring the, the crews out to the oil rigs and back. So it's a very stable recurring business where they, they sign two to five year contracts for revenue and they get paid whether they fly or not. So BRS, interesting stock, especially ar around 40. It's in the high 40s right now. 
Uh, also in the big macro, the Fed this week uh, said it expects to keep interest rates, quote, exceptionally low until late 2014, at least. Ron, uh, two things. One, what does that mean for investors? And two, is it just me, or is that a pretty long time frame? I mean, to basically project out for two and a half years, yeah. we're going to keep these rates exceptionally low. What does that say to you? Hey, it's a long time frame, yes. And I think, you know, he reserves the right to probably adjust, adjust <laughs> his estimates. But what it says to me is that uh, the Fed is concerned about our economy. Um, things are not strong, um, they need to keep rates low. Typically, that would be good for stocks. But, you know, if. if Economic growth is anemic. We have to make sure we build those slow growth rates into our valuation models. James, I'm going to come out and say this is kind of ridiculous. This is the <laughs> cart leading the horse here. The Fed is supposed to be reacting to the economy and helping, sort of, to, to, to guide it, not to make some declaration of what it's going to do for years in advance, regardless of whether that action is still necessary. I mean, why not? Why not announce you're going to do it to 2017 or 2020? How do they know 2014? They don't. They're just making it up. Yeah, I agree with James. And there was some dissent within the Fed. Not everyone agreed to to this statement this time for that very reason. Why are you saying what you're going to do for almost three years when no one really knows what's going to happen in that time? And I don't see how supply and demand, just the way markets function, actually, this will work. I mean, sometime in 2013, market forces would dictate that... uh, you know, interest rates would start to rise in advance of when the Fed says they will, just by people uh, naturally buying and then selling in anticipation of that uh, rise. So I don't really see how it works in reality. Right, and that may be why they moved it back to 2014 to keep to keep it from rising sooner. Could keep be. rates from rising. You just keep pushing it down the road. Uh, a lot of earnings to get to this week. We're going to start with Apple, obviously a huge quarter. Uh, we've all seen the media reports, uh, just a few of the record numbers. Revenue of $46 billion, profit of $13 billion. Apple sold more than 37 million iPhones, 15 million iPads, 5 million Macs. Just incredible. Uh, Apple now has $97 billion in cash. Jeff Fisher, what are they going to do with that? What a problem to have. Okay, this is <laughs> this is like Warren Buffett's problem. He has so much cash and he doesn't know what to buy with it. He has to buy only very large companies. Now Buffett has the benefit he can buy a railroad or he can buy a, a candy maker or a shoemaker. Apple, the most successful tech company in the world and the most profitable, has to buy something complementary to its business, obviously. What do you buy when you own your operating system? You have you have detailed say in everything you produce. You don't want to let other products interfere with what you produce. What do you buy to complement such a strong business already? Do you have and, an idea? Well, Port- I, Portugal? <laughs> <laughs> I think that they have, a, they have a tiger by the tail, obviously. Apple TV is, is still a rumor, but very yeah. likely. And once you have Apple t- TV, you're locking up all these multimedia, TV, video, audio, uh, music, everything but eBooks. but that's a young, a young uh, niche still. So what, what I would do with some of that cash is start to squeeze out Netflix, Netflix and Amazon and start to buy, sign multimedia deals to get movies, to get shows that these other companies are don't have the money. Netflix does not have the money to buy these things. So not so much spending it on an acquisition, but more along the lines of just uh, massive content deals? Uh, yeah, I guess on, on IP in a way or, or content. James, what would you do with the cash? I do like the idea of, be- well, first of all, I'm a dividend guy. So I would pay it out. I would pay $104 special dividend per share. I'll I mean, take that's, it. that's how big uh, they, they could make this special dividend. That, that's just massive. But barring that, if they insisted on redeploying, I do like the idea of, of sort of becoming the, the iTunes for, for videos, except that the 
video, uh, the movie industry economics is not as good as the the music industry economics. So I would expect that these these deals are going to be too expensive. It, it, it wouldn't be a space I would want to compete in myself if, if I were in, in Tim Cook's shoes. Ron? One thing I think investors need to just be aware of is that a lot of the cash is overseas. So uh, for Apple to repatriate that would require them to pay a hefty tax on it. So for those running valuation models or counting that cash dollar for dollar, I wouldn't necessarily do that. you got to take a haircut to that cash. Point. Um, Ron, when you look at shares of Apple, um, do, do you think they are fairly valued? Do you think they're overvalued? I mean, they had this record monster quarter, and the stock, you know, there, there are people out there who say, wow, this stock is, is a real value. The stock really only moved about 5 or 6% up right. on the news. I would think if it was really such a steal and they had that blowout quarter, it would have shot up even mm-hmm. more. Well, we own Apple and MDP. We owned it at about 380 Up until this latest release, we thought it was uh, worth about $500. I would say that these results kind of make us revisit that valuation model, and we're in the process of doing that now. So I don't know where we'll end up. Um, it certainly won't be below the 500. Uh, so it is not overvalued at this point, and in fact, it is most likely undervalued. Are you a Mac user yourself at home? I we have Macs, iPads, iPhones, and and one PC to do some things that Macs just yep. can't seem to do. I, I agree with Ron. It looks undervalued, and part of the reason I think we all know is the product cycle in electronics is so quick and so vicious that if they don't hit a home run every year or two, they could stumble. That said, if they do start a dividend, that could help. That that sends a signal to the market. We think our cash flow is stable, strong, going to keep growing. Whereas without a dividend, they're kind of playing by the market's rules of where this tech company that's always on the edge. And it will create this artificial, for lack of a better word, demand from dividend investors who only buy stocks that have dividends. They'll come rushing into the market and create demand for the stock. Counterbalanced by the tech people, though, who, who <laughs> I was will say, out, who get out of the stock. Yeah, right. Coming up, it was a huge week for one struggling retailer, but can they keep the momentum? More after this. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Full Money. Chris Hill here in the studio with Jeff Fisher, James Early, and Ron Gross. Guys, more earnings, uh, better than expected earnings for two of the big Dow stocks. 3M's quarterly profits up 3%. Caterpillar's quarterly profits up 60%. Uh, James, these are also two dividend players. What do you make of the results? It's interesting, Chris. There have always been must-have products. Uh, Elmo, uh, Power Rangers... (laughs) Recently, <laughs> heavy equipment seems to be the must-have product. Caterpillar is just killing it. It's just amazing. People just couldn't wait any longer to buy heavy <laughs> machinery. Um, double-digit volume growth. What is interesting to me is that the U.S. actually did pretty well. China did not do quite as well in terms of Caterpillar sales. They are very bullish in their outlooks. Uh, but you would just think that, that people wouldn't be shelling out big money for this, but they are, which uh, is great. Ron, 3M, what do you think? Yeah, 3M looks good. They're st- uh, strengthening their industrial and transportation segments. The uh, display and graphics business continues to struggle. Um, one thing the market doesn't like is that they haven't put a succession plan in place for the CEO whose retirement is, is imminent, and that uncertainty is creating um, some frustration among investors. But the, the company seems yeah. to be doing Th- well. That whole plan seems scotch-taped together, if you ask me. <laughs> <laughs> i got to say, the one thing I loved about Caterpillar's results, and I'm going to read it so I don't get it wrong, is they said, they believe global recession can be avoided, and they expect the threat of recession in Europe to ease by the middle of the year. So, People that are worried out there, the caterpillars Fed. seeing something, something else. Uh, we talked on last week's show about uh, Intel's uh, earnings and IBM's earnings. Talked that they, those are two companies that can be seen as bellwethers. 
Caterpillar and 3M doing well, does that generally bode well for the U.S. economy, you think, Ron? It does. 3M is, is yep. definitely an industrial bell, bellwether, and Caterpillar, my guy, gosh, yeah, you know, in terms of industrial production. Yeah. Shares of Netflix up more than 20% on Thursday after the company's latest earnings. More than 600,000 U.S. subscribers added last quarter. Jeff, is Netflix back? Well, it was a step in the right direction, but they still have a long way to go. The good news is they added 600,000 subscribers, and they're back to above 24 million again. Plus, they've made some great content deals, like bringing Arrested Development back to life in 2013. But these deals are expensive, and they're expected to still lose money all year. And my concern is, in the years to follow, they'll become less relevant. Why do you say Why? that? Why? Because like AOL back in the day, they are now competing with the internet bit by bit. There's no reason you cannot surf the internet for the media you want. And the content producers, NBC, ABC, those are they all house it on their own sites because they can then run advertising too. There's no reason most content producers are not going to set up their own stations, as you will. And you can aggregate uh, uh, them all online however you want. But the point being, you don't need a single host like Netflix in the long run is my is my concern. Well, clearly they at least for now have a first mover advantage and, yep. and have a nice subscriber base. We should disclose there are Motley multiple Fool rec- multiple yeah. recommendations yeah. In, in in Motley Fool services um, and continue to like it very much, but there's a lot of competition. We're at the very infancy of the streaming business here. Earlier this week Google announced it is changing its privacy policy. Starting March 1st Google will track users across almost all of its sites including YouTube, Gmail and its search engine. Uh, consumers will not be able to opt out. So, Ron, privacy concerns aside, what does this mean for Google's business? Well, I think it's probably good for the business since they can, you know, obviously target more specifically to everyone's personal tastes. Um, I know people are afraid of Big Brother, if you will, and don't like being tracked. It's not that much different than what's going on now. It just multiple across multiple Google services um, and you know they, they still will not sell your personal data to third parties um, you know your your information stays within Google it might be annoying um, but it's it annoying now out, it I mean like. I don't I, I googled think, I think Ron Gross the, before the show think, there are a lot of you I <laughs> there are that. a lot yeah. I mean it's it's the future I don't think we can avoid it I mean we can kick it kick it down the road but the internet is is what it is and, and our personal information is not so personal anymore uh, shares of Google basically flat over the last two years. Is this move, I mean, this is a company that, that you own and you know well, do you look at this move and think, okay, this is actually going to benefit the stock price? I don't think this specifically will benefit the stock price. No, um, you know the stock's been smacked around the late, latest week or so after earnings. Uh, people concerned about the cost per click or, uh, number coming down, even though their paid clicks was up nicely over thirty um, percent. And they're spending a lot of money right now for the future, and and that has a little some people a little bit worried. Um, at Million Dollar Portfolio, we're willing to give them the benefit of the doubt and say that that spending will be put to good use and and will show up in cash flow down the road. Big changes afoot at J.C. Penney. New CEO Ron Johnson, uh, formerly of Apple, wants to simplify pricing and make it more predictable. So J.C. Penney is cutting prices permanently. Um, what do we think? Is this a good strategy? Shares uh, of J.C. Penney were up big this week. Um, partly, I think, because of that. Partly because they raised their guidance for the year. What do you think, James? Well, really, what do you do if you're J.C. Penney? I mean, the, the name isn't that cool. The concept might be a little bit outdated, but no, there's still value there. And 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 so what you want to do is, is maybe not invest a ton of money, but try to make the business as cool as possible. I like this idea. I think it's innovative. Uh, I, I think it, it does bring a little bit of that sort of Apple 
thinking in uh, in terms of of not having a lot of price changes. So I think this is a good move. Jeff, what do you it'll think? It'll be it'll be much more efficient too. Last year they they had more than 500 sales over the over the 12 months. So they are cranking out a lot of pamph- pamphlets, a lot of news. This is much more efficient, but they are trying to change their mind share with the consumer where they were a place where these are we have semi quality <laughs> semi quality <laughs> products at at these I like that you're struggling to be polite. I'm sure they love prices. that categorization. <laughs> <laughs> but look, they're 40% off now. Rush in, you know, it was forced uh, urgency. Yeah. And now the mind share is going to be we're cheap all the time. And so you compete with other things like Target or Kohl's. I was going to say, because Kohl's and Macy's have really taken market share from JCPenney over the last few years. If you're them, you're you're probably a little worried about this. I applaud uh, Ron Johnson's boldness. This is this is not kind of you know I'm going to come in and keep things as they were. He's making a big bet, and uh, who am I to really second guess his expertise in this area? It, it looks like he's got a nice plan. I, I, some of the details are a little wacky, like the town center plan in the in the middle of the, the store where people will gather and congregate and he'll give away free hot dogs and yeah. haircuts. Go hang out and, at JCPenney's. Yeah. <laughs> you got every, every Friday, there's a special sale too. Every other Friday on paycheck day. So you can come in and spend your paycheck. So now that's so, actually interesting. interesting. I, I like some of the yeah. treasure hunt concepts that uh, Costco is famous for being brought in. The town center specifically sounds a little wacky. Five hundred sales per year is more than one. That's one and a half a day, or something like that. Yeah, that's crazy. What they were done before. And finally, on Thursday, Taco Bell introduced a breakfast menu at nearly 800 locations. If all goes well, breakfast burritos and hash browns will be available <laughs> at 5,600 nationwide by 2014. Good move, Ron. I, I like it. It makes sense. Yeah. Who doesn't love a wrap, which is basically a burrito? <laughs> it's a perfect breakfast food. Um, They're teaming up with Cinnabon. It, it's Tropicana. Yeah, it's, sounds it's a relatively inexpensive uh, product. You know, go in for a buck fifty, two bucks, get um, breakfast. I like it. And for what it's worth, a lot of the big breakfast story is international growth because the rest of the world doesn't necessarily have American breakfast consumption habits yet. But if these food companies can push these offerings, I think Yum Brands is experimenting in China as well. That could be big business. All right, Jeff Fisher, James Early, Ron Gross. Guys, we'll see you a little bit later in the program. You know, you can always drop us an email, radio at fool.com. Ask us questions, weigh in on anything we've talked about this week. Just drop us a note. That's radio at fool.com. Big consumer tech companies spend a lot of time and money marketing their products, so why are most of them so bad at it? Our guest this week has some thoughts on what the best tech companies can teach the rest of the tech companies. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. The iPhone has it, the Kindle has it, and Netflix streaming has it. The it is consumer evangelists. But our guest this week says that these are the exceptions and that most tech companies succeed in spite of their marketing, not because of it. Alex Goldfain is the author of Evangelist Marketing, What Apple, Amazon, and Netflix Understand About Their Customers That Your Company Probably Doesn't. Alex, welcome to Motley Full Money. Thank you for having me. Uh, I want to talk about these companies and, and some of the other individual companies that you write about in your book, but I, I want to start with sort of more of a big picture, because uh, I said, you, you know, you're, you're saying that there are companies out there in the tech world that are succeeding in spite of their marketing. When you look at companies like Microsoft, Dell, AT&T, Hewlett-Packard, uh, 
Um, what is the problem? What is the problem with their marketing? <laughs> the problem is that they're leaving billions on the table. Uh, literally, if they stopped marketing today, those companies, if they stopped all outgoing marketing today, sales would not be affected very much at all. Uh, we'd see a slight dip. And the problem with their marketing is they're simply not connecting with consumers. Uh, it's too technical. It's not compelling. Uh, it is what uh, their executives uh, from a conference room think will be interesting to consumers. But what they haven't done is actually we had a conversation with human beings, one-on-one, -on -one, qualitatively, which I write about in the book, uh, to understand what language and messaging uh, is compelling to real people. And so what they're spitting out there is, uh, you know, long model numbers, complicated messages. It's too technical. The public relations is horrendous. Um, it's, it's, it's really upside down and backwards, if that's possible. Um, and, and so, you know, they're, they're succeeding based on the um, name of their brand, on, uh, on the, the wide range of their distribution, and on these two factors, that consumers follow technology like uh, fans follow sports, right? So there is no industry that has such a passionate and interested following like technology does, right? Not appliances, not autos, not fashion, nothing. And the fact that there is a media world that is built to report on what this industry does, right? Uh, yourself included. And because of the media and because of the consumers that are so automatically interested in what this industry does, the industry gets by and the industry succeeds rather well, but boy, the industry could be doing so much better. Well, and one of the, the early surprises in the book for me, when I think about companies like Apple and, and Netflix, um, I associate them uh, with people who are sort of uh, on the cutting edge of technology, the early adopters, that sort of thing. Um, but one of the things you establish early on in the book is that evangelists are, when you're talking about evangelists, you're talking about mainstream consumers. These are just right. everyday people. You don't want early adopter evangelists. You want mainstream evangelists. You want mom and dad evangelists. Uh, you know, Jeffrey Moore, who wrote Crossing the Chasm, uh, was the last book to look at technology marketing before mine, before evangelist marketing. And he called it a chasm. The chasm was the space between early adopters and mainstream consumers. And I don't think it's a chasm anymore. As time, that book came out in the early 90s. As time has gone on and technology has matured and the industry has developed, the chasm has actually become a solar system, I believe. And early adopters and mainstream consumers are on different planets. They're, not, they're, they're so not on the same bell curve. Uh, and so when you master early adopters, what happens is it's almost physically impossible to then make the transition to mainstream consumers. And so I argue in the book, start with mainstream consumers. Start with mom and dad. Bypass the early adopters, because they're only 2 to 3% of your market. Uh, don't even start with them, because if you do, you master uh, uh, habits and language and communication and techniques that, that, that work for them, but they won't work with mainstream consumers, because they speak different languages. Let's dig into uh, the first company, and that's Apple. Um, yeah. uh, obviously, uh, earlier this week, Apple had a record quarter in terms of the number of iPhones they're selling, in terms of their profits. Um, wh what is the secret to Apple's marketing? The two secrets that they had were unbelievably good products, better than anybody else's, and 
simply an unparalleled instinct that was corporate because it started with Steve Jobs. It was company-wide. They had an unparalleled instinct to understand precisely what would make consumers go crazy, what marketing and what product features would make consumers wildly excited and passionate. So when you look at the competitive landscape for Apple, um, it's, it's clear from your answer that you don't see any legitimate competitors in terms of some of the products that they are churning out. Um, but one of the other things you hit on in the book is that, um, you know, there, essentially the notion that there are no annuities when it comes to uh, tech companies and their success. So all that being said, what do you think is Apple's biggest challenge over the next year or two? Well, I think you're beginning to see their biggest challenge in, in very recent headlines. And uh, that is the uproar that's, that's sort of uh, coalescing around their manufacturing standards in China. And uh, somebody said very recently that if you knew how your iPhone was made, then you wouldn't want to have it. You wouldn't want to be putting it up to your ear. And, you know, it, it's a, I'm guessing this is not a unique uh, issue that, that only Apple is going to deal with. But in regards to business challenges, uh, yeah, you can look at Android phones as posing a challenge, but they're so splintered and there's so many companies making them, you know. You could look at other tablets coming up, and yeah, they'll push Apple. But again, there, there, there's 10 to 20 companies competing with Apple, and, and Apple's got, you know, all the rest by itself. So I think its biggest challenge is going to be these manufacturing issues uh, that, 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 that are going to um, energize protesters probably, you know. I think they're going to motivate uh, anti-Apple people, and there's a lot of those people, people who simply don't like Apple because it's so big and successful, and people who are Windows people. Um, so that's what I think it's going to be. Do you think that that issue is going to resonate with a high enough percentage of mainstream consumers to make a meaningful impact on Apple's bottom line? No, and this is why. Uh, because Apple's consumers... Uh, in, in very large part, are evangelists. And we talk about this in the book. And when you have evangelists, they are uh, trusting of you. So they assume that you have their best interests in heart. They're also forgiving, so that if you make a mistake, they're going to assume it was relatively innocent and that you didn't mean it, and they're going to give you a chance to make it better. And if you need an example of this, look at Apple's antenna gate you know, about a year ago or so, a year and a half ago, where um, you couldn't hold the phone in your hand, for goodness sake, and not have the call drop out, you know? That's and, a problem. And, yeah, it's a small problem. <laughs> and people, uh, you know, were in an uproar, and, and Apple fans were really angry. And Steve Jobs came out on stage with two of his uh, high-level VPs, and he said, look, we screwed up, here's our solution, and, uh, you know, we'll try to do better. And we're going to figure out the problem. And they did. And, and, and it was gone. Within 24 hours, it was gone from the news. And so I don't think they're going to lose customers because they have evangelists. And this is exactly why you want evangelists. You want to do everything you can for this very reason, to develop as many evangelists as possible because they're trusting and forgiving. And best of all, they are hyper-repeat customers. 
Coming up, more with Alex Goldfein as we try to fix Microsoft and play a round of buy, sell, or hold. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. You're listening to Motley Fool Money, talking with Alex Goldfein, author of the new book, Evangelist Marketing, What Apple, Amazon, and Netflix Understand About Their Customers That Your Company Probably Doesn't. Let's move on to a company that's not on the cover of your book, and that's Microsoft. Uh, Microsoft um, does have some good products. Windows Phone 7 has gotten some positive reviews. Uh, When you hear people talking about when you read reviews of Xbox and the Kinect gaming system, I mean, it's, it's really powerhouse stuff. Uh, and yet, there is not that buzz. There does not seem to be the type of evangelist marketing going on with Microsoft. Why is that, and what does Microsoft need to do to get it? I'm a firm believer that uh, consumer buzz and energy builds share price. And this might be an interesting topic for us to dive into. So. Apple has buzz, and Amazon has buzz, and even Netflix has buzz. Uh, and, and you saw what Apple's stock uh, has done and, and what, their, what their unbelievable earnings were uh, recently. Microsoft does not have buzz. Feelings about Microsoft are pretty, you know, um, somewhere between zero and below zero, I would say, uh, on, on the continuum. And so I believe that consumer energy translates directly into share price. You know, Microsoft simply isn't a good marketer. They're just not. And that begins with the CEO, right? Both uh, Bill Gates as as well as uh, Balmer now. These are engineers. These are people who uh, like to create products and and invest in product development. And for Microsoft, they've got some really good products that nobody gets really excited about because they don't market them. They're just not good marketers. Uh, I'm a longtime Microsoft shareholder. When I look at Microsoft, um, I was saying uh, to our producer, Matt Greer, the other day that I I look at Microsoft as as a dad of teenagers who desperately wants to be cool. That the teenage (laughs) that the teenage kids are just like, Dad, you're not cool. And his response is, no, 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 I'm really cool. And it's like, first of all, no, you're not cool. Second of all, your teenagers don't actually need or want you to be cool. They want you to drive them places. They want you to, you know, be their wallet. Um, I mean, does does Microsoft, when it comes to their marketing, do they just need to essentially stop trying to be cool, to stop trying to compete with Apple on the cool level? Well, that's a... It's a that's sort of a, a failing instinct, right? That's uh, that, that competing on cool, uh, which they've tried, and uh, obviously with, with, with not a lot of success. Uh, what they need to do is really start talking to their customers, right? They, they need to decide, first of all, who is their customer, right? Is their customer the consumer or is their customer the business? And then they need to start talking to that customer. You know, uh, at, at Research in Motion, it was widely known that the two CEOs, the former CEOs now, simply disagreed on who the customer was. One thought the customer was the business, and the other thought the customer was the consumer. And if you don't know who the customer is, how are you going to market? You can't. It's impossible. So for Microsoft, first of all, they need to decide who the customer is. Then they need to go have qualitative conversations with as many of them as they can. 
and they need to understand what these people think about Microsoft, what they love about Microsoft, if anything, uh, what they do with their Microsoft products, how these Microsoft products improve their lives. That's the centerpiece to my system for uh, creating evangelists. You need to get the, the uh, language of your customers, because that is the very best possible marketing language you can have. You know that's going to be compelling because it comes from your market. And if it comes from your market, you simply take it, you slightly repackage it, and then you unleash it back onto your market. As we said in the beginning of this conversation, if you're not talking to your customers and getting your marketing language there, you're simply guessing from a conference room. When you look at Microsoft's recent campaign, I'm a PC, do you think that is a step in the right direction? Yes, I think it is uh, probably the most effective marketing they've ever done, um, ever. And uh, I think it's gained traction. I think they've been um, unnecessarily sort of um, sporadic with this. You know, they, they've made headways and then they've stopped. Uh, this launched, I believe, in 2010, or maybe even in 2009, where you have really happy people, you know, interacting with Microsoft products. And then they've sort of gone and made them nerdy and, and unnecessarily sort of engineering-focused. Uh, and then you don't see the ads for six months, and then suddenly they appear again. You know, and compare that to Apple's uh, attacks on Microsoft, unrelenting for years with the I'm a Mac, I'm a PC ads. You know those? Yes. Uh, if, if you compare the two approaches, right, they were just unrelenting for years, over and over again. All right, we will wrap up with a round of buy, sell, or hold. Uh, let's start with this one. They were the hot product at this year's Consumer Electronics Show. Buy, sell, or hold Ultrabooks? I would probably uh, hold on Ultrabooks uh, just because of tablets. Tablets and smartphones, that's what I think. This is someone who is known for his prodigious self-marketing. Buy, sell, or hold Donald Trump? Sell. Uh, Donald Trump doesn't have the support of the party uh, that he represents. He has a television show that is uh, getting up there in age and years and, and, and getting down in interest. Uh, so I would sell Donald Trump. And finally, buy, sell, or hold 3D television. Sell. Not going to catch on. Really? Not going to happen. Because I can buy a 51-inch TV for uh, $499. And uh, a 51-inch 3D TV costs three or $4,000. Uh, not only that, uh, I hate those stupid glasses. <laughs> Nobody wants to wear them, right? Because what about all the people who I wear glasses, right, real glasses? What am I going to do with those glasses to put over my head? Um, and <laughs> aside from that personal feeling, there just isn't enough content, you know? Uh, this is a uh, new revenue stream, I believe, that the industry is trying to create for itself. Uh, this is a business move. I don't think with the majority of mainstream consumers this is going to catch on. The book is Evangelist Marketing, What Apple, Amazon, and Netflix Understand About Their Customers That Your Company Probably Doesn't. Alex Goldfein, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. 
Joining me once again in the studio, Jeff Fisher, James Early, and Ron Gross. Guys, it is that time again, time for the Stock Center on our radar. We'll bring in our man Steve Broido from the other side of the glass to hit you with a question. Ron Gross, you're up first. Chris, I'm going to circle back around to a stock that I've always wanted to own but never have, and that's Johnson & Johnson, ticker JNJ. The valuation really was just never where I needed it to be. But the company is a market leader. It's only it's one of only four companies that still has a triple A credit rating, a three point five percent dividend yield. It's both a core stock and a Best Buy now over our, our inside value service. So I'm going to circle back around. Steve, sure. My question is, what is Johnson and Johnson? I know they make a ton of different things, but if I had to describe it in one sentence, Johnson Johnson is what? Uh, healthcare related consumer products. Is that fair? Mm-hmm. Does that work for you, Steve? I think so. I, I know. That I'm sure they make a ton of stuff. James Early. Uh, Chris, I looked at Penn Virginia. The ticker is PVR. It's a coal and midstream uh, natural gas partnership, 7.5% yield, just a sixth of its revenue uh, from, from coal, but it, coal makes three times the profit of gas. But I wouldn't touch this company, this, this partnership, <laughs> uh, because uh, it leases property on, uh, for coal mining done via mountaintop removal, which is kind of a really nasty thing if you're into socially responsible investing. It, you clear cut, then you blast the mountaintop apart, and, and all these mercury and, and sulfur compounds leak into the, the water. Uh, so that's one I would avoid arch coal, Peabody coal, or some others uh, along these lines, too. Steve? My question is, will my son live in a world without coal? Hmm. Coal is about half our electricity now. It comes from coal. Uh, so I would say not likely uh, in a global sense. Uh, you know, maybe in 50 years we can phase he's out. He's three months old, so, you know, he's got a <laughs> while to go. <laughs> I hope. I hope he does. Jeff Fisher. CA Technologies. The ticker is CA. <clears throat> this week they increased their dividend fivefold from $0.20 cents to $1. So these shares now yield 4%. And it, they trade at nine times, very steady, strong, free cash flow. And it is a information technology software company. Steve? Who's its biggest competitor? I'd put BMC Software up there and Oracle as well. These guys have had a some lot of initials right? here. BMC, CA. Okay. <laughs> I like companies Does that make with you initials. Scared? Yep. Is that it does a little bit. I don't know how to distinguish them, but... They have a mildly tainted past, you. right? That's All part right, of the SB, value play. Thanks, sir. Wait, what was that? I think the CA has a, like a mildly tainted past. I think that's part of the value play. <laughs> mildly tainted. Don't we all? <laughs> <laughs> so true. <laughs> all right, Jeff Fisher, James Early, Ron Gross, guys. Thanks for being here. Thanks. Thank Chris. you, Chris. Thank you. Thank you to our special guest this week, Alex Goldfain. For video highlights, you can go to fooltv.com. You can also check out Market Foolery, our daily podcast. We do it every day. You can check it out on iTunes and online at marketfoolery.com. That's it for this edition of Motley Fool Money. Our engineer is Steve Broido. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.